encourage you, if you want to follow along, I'm not going to read the text this morning, but I want to share with you out of John chapter 9, which is lit, our, our lectionary text this week is the entirety of uh, John 9. So because of its length, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it is the story of the healing of the man who's been, who was born blind. It is one of, interestingly, one of the seven miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. And so out of those seven miracles, which, by the way, John is the one who says there's so many things that Jesus did, we couldn't even begin to accumulate it into books. But these have been written that you might believe. So we want to pay attention closely when we see the miracles of Jesus that are recorded by John. Now, I'm not or diminishing any of the other Gospels, but... But John's writing was with this intent of being able to invite us to encounter and to know Jesus. And so these have been written so that you might believe. Now, there's some real fascinating parts of the story of the man who is healed, the man born blind. And so I, I want to spend some time. There's a few things that have jumped out at me. I'm not going to be, it's not going to be an exhaustive teaching on chapter 9, but prayerfully one that will encourage our hearts. I've titled the message this morning, Mud and Dust Season, which interestingly, it's right where we are, isn't it? In Indiana, right? <laughs> I mean, it's springtime, for real, tomorrow's the first day of spring, believe it or not. The wind was blowing and the snow was flying yesterday, right? But tomorrow's spring, and it's like winter's got this grip that doesn't want to let go, you know. <sighs> I will not quit. I will not relent. I uh, walked outside, and, you know, Denise is gone, so I have to go out and take care of her little chickens. So I'm walking out. You know, yesterday the ground was frozen. But, but you know, what's interesting, um, th this past week my granddaughter, um, Evelyn, oh, by the way, I forgot her name. Oh, my stars. I'm so sorry, guys. Her name is uh, Ellie Brooke. Is, uh, it's a beautiful name. Ellie Brooke uh, is our new granddaughter. And then, uh, by the way, our, our oldest daughter is going to have a daughter. So we just got a bevy girls that are on, coming our way. But it's all good. I love it. Okay, so our, our, our granddaughter, Evelyn, was over during the middle of the week. And uh, on that day, it was a little warmer. And we were experiencing on that day exactly why I don't necessarily always call these weeks spring. What I call it is mud season. You know what I'm talking about? When, when the ground goes from frozen to not quite frozen to frozen to not quite frozen to thawing out about this much of the ground, and where we happen to live, we're surrounded by trees and whatnot. So, you know, when it begins to thaw, just those first two to three, four inches, and then it rains... And, of course, underneath that is still frozen. So what do you have? You got slippery, slidey mud. And no matter how hard you try, you try to walk across the grass, you're going to go, it just feels like you're sloshing around in mud. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Granddaughter is over. She loves being outdoors. And thankfully, her mother sent her with those, uh, you know, slodging boots or whatever you call them. Galoshes. Thank you. Uh, so she's out there. And she's having a ball. Now, she was jumping in the remaining snow that was still there on Wednesday uh, and said, look at me, Opa, you know, grabbing the snow and then went right through the mud. And, of course, by the time she got into the house, she was trudging in mud. 
That night, uh, before I went to bed, I was sweeping up dried mud because that's what we do in this season. Now, um, uh, truth be told, in about five months, there's another season that we'll be facing that I equally am not really a fan of. Uh, now, again, I don't want to hear, have anybody hear me complaining. I, we're grateful. Uh, the last big banking crisis provided us an opportunity to, to buy a house you know, out of foreclosure. And so we do live in the country. And we're on a lane. And what happens, though, between August and September is not mud season, but dust season. And so during those months, it's like, I don't care how hard you try, you're not going to keep it out. And so you're, I feel like we're always fighting against, you know, mud and dust and whatnot, and just this endless battle with dirt. Now, oddly enough, my, my granddaughter, when she's out, uh, outside, uh, what, what's fascinating about it, I find those seasons sort of annoying, Right. Uh, when when our, we first moved out there, our, boy, that'd be over 10 years ago now. Um, no, man, what year is this? 23, it was 10. So 13, oh my goodness, 13 years. Um, our, so our, our, you know, our tall grown boys were pretty, a, a lot smaller then. So when we first went out to, to, to the property out there, and we were there during mud season, and I'd get annoyed because every time they'd come in and their boots were covered. So my granddaughter, though, I'm not quite as annoyed, but I'm expecting what's going to happen because she loves being outdoors, and, she, and it isn't the mud that she's all about. She's, she's captured by what she's seeing and what she's, she's envisioning in, the, in creation around her. So um, it's not that, that uh, for her it isn't that so much that mud is, is present or making her dirty. It's that she's starting to see life around her. That's what I was trying to get at. So. Um, which, which brings me to the point that I wanted to kind of think about this morning, invite us to think about. Um, this last week, I, I, I read about a, an artist. His name is Yosuke Asai. He's a Japanese artist, internationally renowned, who interestingly uses mud or dirt as his medium. Um, he makes these huge, detailed murals. Do you, do you have any of those photos, maybe? Or these, and they're, they're beautiful, they're vivid, they kind of have a dreamy sort of appearance to them. But he paints with mud. Interesting. Very different type of individual. So what he says is, I can find dirt anywhere in the world, and I don't need special materials. Dirt is, by nature, very different than the materials sold in art stores. Seeds grow in it, microorganisms, insects. It's a living medium. So what he has surrendered to is that even the, you know, no matter how detailed he gets with what he makes, he knows it will never be permanent. It's somewhat temporary by nature. Now, what's interesting about Yasuki Asai is that it looks like he never left the backyard. He just decided that's where he's going to spend the rest of his life, playing in the dirt. Forming beauty out of dirt. Wait a minute. I think I've heard that before. Genesis 1. 
The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Now, again, that word for waters is hard to translate, but what it really communicates is the idea of chaos and disorder. And so what we see in Genesis 1 is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and, 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 and the, 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 you know, the, the Spirit of the Lord says, um, let there be light, and Jesus is the one that speaks that because according to Colossians 2, everything is created by him, for him, and through him. So you find all of the Godhead present in this activity of what we see described in Genesis 1, that over the midst of, of, of darkness and disorder and death, comes light, life, order, and beauty. It's such a powerful, beautiful picture. Now, um, what's interesting in Genesis 1 is this slight but fundamental difference in a word that's used in the description of creation. One is in verse 24. When God says, again, this is going to be the voice of Jesus, says, let there be light, let, there, you know, let, let the waters come forth, and then let the earth, verse 24, Bring forth vegetation. So the word that's used there for earth is a descriptive of something that's filled with life. So it's original meaning implying that the contents of life were there, and, and God says, let it bring it forth. Now, in Genesis 2, we get this fuller explanation of what's said in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when the Godhead says, let us... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, make man in our image. And, and then chapter 2, verse 7, it says this, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust. Now, a different word, not earth, but of the dust. The word for dust of the ground, so he breathes life into his nostrils and it becomes a living being. The word for dust, this is really interesting. The word for dust literally means something pulverized. And watch, if you, if you go to its original Hebraic meaning, it means debris, rubble, rubbish. Something not used. Let the earth that's filled with life bring forth vegetation. But when he makes man, he picks up the debris and the rubble, and he forms man. That's really a powerful picture. Now, can I point something out that's really obvious? Let's put our thinking caps on for a minute. Out of all creation, mankind has been forming things ever since. It's kind of our avocation because we were formed by our Creator, as image bearers. It's, it's just a part of who we are. So watch this. The original mud and dust season. The Spirit of God's hovering over this chaos and darkness and disorder. And here comes light, life, order, and beauty out of mud and dust. And the good news that we're proclaiming today is this. The same God who came to the original mud and dust season and changed everything comes in the person of Christ to meet man in their unending mud and dust season to say, I can still form and reform 
and change everything. It's good news, beloved. In our text in John 9, I stated this before. These are one of the, one of the seven miraculous signs recorded by John. Feeding of the 5,000, changing the water to wine, healing the official son. There's several others. It's all pointing to the promised son of man. This one deliverer that's going to bring this kingdom that, that would bring man back to their original vocation of relationship and representation. This particular miracle is really fascinating, and it's one for the books, because especially for uh, somebody like me who grew up with some Pentecostalism in our background, this one challenges us. So Jesus, uh, let's go back to chapter, what, uh, we are in chapter 9, we'll go back to chapter 8. He's confronted by the woman who was caught in adultery, which some say was a setup, right? And this woman is drugged before him. He says, let the person without sin throw the first stone. But, but what's interesting is by the end of chapter 8, they're picking up stones to stone him. That's how chapter 8 ends. And Jesus hides himself and goes back to the Mount of Olives. So he's in Jerusalem in the temple. He's at the Mount of Olives. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, chapter 9. And the day before, now again, after he's, all this confrontation takes place, he's walking back likely toward the temple. And this is how John records it. He saw the man born blind, chapter 9, verse 1, and Jesus did nothing. Now, let that mess with your Pentecostal brain for just a moment. Jesus saw. But see, in this miracle, God, see, Jesus is the perfect representation of the heart of the Father, the love of God represented in Christ. This is what Christ is about. He's showing us what mankind looks like. He's showing us what God looks like. It isn't that he's indifferent to the suffering of this man. But there is something that's going on, more than what meets the eye. Now, initially, the disciples uh, are, are, want to have a chat about what meets the eye. It's the obvious. This blind man and his condition. Because in their upbringing, anybody in this kind of suffering is being punished by God. They're, they're not welcomed into the temple. They're obviously not able to, you know, something happened here. And so since Jesus doesn't bring it up, the disciples bring it up. Interesting. Hey, Jesus, I've been meaning to ask this question. I just wanted to ask. Can, can I just? They ask the question that everybody else has already processed in their mind when they see suffering. Somebody must be to blame. So tell us, Jesus, is it him or is it his parents? And, you know, again, I, I, I just find this miracle fascinating because Jesus heals this nameless man, and the man never says a word. He never asks. Yet the miracle of Jesus was about exposing a couple of things. One was the tactic of hell, and the other is the blindness of men's hearts, okay? 
So the, the first that he's exposing is the, the tactic of hell, which is active to this day. What's the tactic of hell? Who's to blame? Blaming is the devil's game, beloved. Okay? And, and, and Jesus' answer, is it the parents? Is it him? Which one is it, Jesus? He said, it's neither. This is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here we have a man who bearing, you know, what everyone would see is the mark of some kind of punishment from God, and Jesus sees something different? The disciples' discernment began with the obvious. And again, I want to just, just humanize this story for a minute. Put yourself in that moment. Think about this. You have a blind man in the first century. There are no paved roads. There are no concrete sidewalks. There are pathways, and there are walkways. And in those walkways, animals walk. And so wherever this man goes, he's being covered in mud and dust and rubbish. And he can't avoid it. He can't see it. At least the disciples can step to the side and not step into that pile. The blind man, he smells like rubbish because he stepped in it. He's covered in mud. He's covered in dust. And, and, and he's, that's the unending uh, plot of his life, covered in this, forever on the fringe. Everybody can see him from a distance. Oh. Oh. It's him. So Jesus makes something really, really clear. Okay? The disciples, I'm not saying they're, they're accusatory. They're just seeing Oh, that's him. He's covered in it. And Jesus says, uh, guess what? Blame isn't the, the story here. It's not what he is about. Blame is the devil's game. And so Jesus, and for Jesus, the man's mud and dust is not an opportunity to assign blame, but it's the very place for the works of God to be revealed. Pause. Think deeply on that thought. As we reach out to others, and we see others, individuals' lives covered in mud and dust. And often, many of us have heard the message that if only that could get out of the way, then God could work. And yet Jesus comes to a man covered in it and says, oh, that's where God is going to work. Wow. Selah. See, blame is what Satan does. Followers of Jesus, we are called to something else, to live like Jesus does, in co-suffering love, not in theological stone-throwing. So I find this incredible as I think about this in my own life, but as I observe our particular context in our, you know, right where we live. This bothers me deeply when I hear Christian leaders and when they interpret disaster, famine, epidemics, displaced peoples, and they look for someone or something to blame. Beloved, the temptation, that knee jerk is in us. 
to find a stone and to want to throw it. So don't miss this. The platform of this miracle in John 9, in this instinct to want to blame, Jesus says, oh, guess what the Father looks like. He comes in co-suffering love. So I, I love what Brian Zahn says about this. He points out here, he said, Jesus seems to be saying this, that when we observe suffering, please hear this, beloved, please hear this. When we see suffering, the question isn't who's to blame. The question is, how do we love? How can we help? It's the theologian, the Swiss theologian Hans Balthasar, who said this, love alone is credible. Nothing else can be believed, and nothing else ought to be believed. Love, beloved, is the high calling of Jesus' followers. I texted Denise yesterday, and I, or no, a couple of days ago while I was typing, I said, uh, hey, babe, your grandmother lived to be 107, right? It's amazing, okay? Her grandmother, while she was alive, she said, she used to say something like this in her old, you know, her high-pitched voice, you got to get your hands in the dirt. It's good for you. Now, for her, it was more than therapeutic. She actually connected it to her body and her well-being. Jesus, in the story of the man born blind in John 9, this is where this becomes really powerful for me. Because, again, I want you to humanize this picture. Here's a man covered mud, dust, and whatever else. Jesus, what does he do? He's not, he, hasn't, he hasn't asked him anything. He takes dust. He adds something to that dust, to that rubble and debris. He places that mud pack on the blind man's eyes, and he sends him to the pool of Siloam, and his eyes are opened. Boom. Now, I shared this a little while ago. This is one of the things I really enjoy about technology today. Other things I don't, but this I do. Being able to open up my phone and see my granddaughter each day and watch her, you know, on day, on day one, her eyes are starting to open up and she's trying to figure out what's what and beginning to sort of figure out what these things are that she's seeing. That's what a normal child does on their first day of life. They begin to see the images. They're trying to discern them. Think about how amazing this was. The blind man's eyes are open and he's beginning to discern. Oh, I, I only felt that, but that's... That's a building. That's a person. And, and here's what's interesting as well. I'm watching this happen in, for me in real time, okay? I'm seeing now a couple of days later, and literally she looks different. Now, I know some of that's the swelling that's come down a little bit, but, but everything, you know, she looks different than a couple of days ago. In John 9... The same thing happens. His eyes are open. Now, obviously, he probably went, oh, my goodness, I'm covered. <laughs> let's, let's take a bath right here real quick. <laughs> but as he's making his way through Jerusalem, people are looking at him, and they're like, wait, what? Well, now, is that, that? Nah, that can't. Is that the man? I keep pointing at Jack. He's a close spot. That's not him. can't be. And this is the first time that we hear the blind man, the man born blind from birth, say anything. And what he says is, I am the one. That's me. Now the drama starts. 
So, you know, the substance that had left him dirty and dismissed in his darkness is what delivered him into a life of light and color from being blamed to being blessed. And the difference, beloved, is who touches the dust and the mud. The one who blames and condemns or the one who forms and reforms us in love. That's the difference. So then, then again, the drama thing starts up, and you've got the Pharisees call this man in, and they're saying, you know, what? How did this happen? They call his parents and his own. He's old enough. Let him talk for himself. And there he's asking questions of the man. And finally, he turns and says, I, I, all I can tell you is I didn't, I wasn't able to see. Now I can see. What, what else do you want? Now, to be fair, this Pharisee movement began with good intentions around the time of Daniel is when the Pharisee movement begins. And they began by a movement among their fellow Jews saying, we're a covenant people, we need to remain faithful to the covenant of God, and we need to be separate from the sins of idolatry around us. Now, that sounds really good. But by the time of Jesus, this thing had devolved into this thing called spiritual pride. They'd become a morality police deeply infected with self-righteousness. As one person put it so well, they had become a take-back-Israel-for-God movement. Convinced of their own purity while in aiming their judgment at obvious sins of other people like tax collectors. So no wonder Jesus tells the parable of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. You know, here we have Pharisees who are rehearsing the promises of Scripture for themselves and flinging curses on others. Sure is a good thing that we don't do that anymore, right? Have you ever heard this phrase? It's a well-worn phrase. I've repeated it before. It sounded good. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Can I just say something to us? If you actually begin to internalize that, that's actually taking the path of the Pharisee movement. Because what Jesus tells us in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is that our invitation is love the sinner and hate our own sin. End of sentence. Otherwise, I'm going to wind up doing what? Rehearsing the promises of God, looking at my own purity, and inflicting curses on others around me and seeing their impurity. The blinding power of self-righteous pride. Oh, wait. That was the point of this miracle. Jesus revealing the blindness of the heart by opening the eyes of the man born blind. He's, he's confronting this actual blindness. These men who now, first this man wasn't allowed into the temple, but now he can see, and now because he turned to them and said, hey, look, do you want to believe in him? And they said, you're out. You're not, you don't, you're not, you're not willing to agree with us. You are out. So um, Jesus comes to the final two verses. Um, 
with, with these Pharisees. I'm going to read this out of the Passion Translation, verses 40 and 41. Some of the Pharisees were standing nearby and overheard these words. They interrupted Jesus and said, you mean to tell us we are blind? Yes, that was the actual point. Jesus said, if you would acknowledge your blindness, then your sin would be removed. But now you claim to see, and your sin remains. Jesus is revealing true blindness and the blindness of spiritual pride. So a couple of verses before that, when he finds this man who was healed, um, he asks this man who had been born blind, who now can see, and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Again, the title given to by the law and the prophets to the one who would bring deliverance to, to God's people. Um, again, I want to I want to kind of mess with your brain a little bit. I've read I, I've seen all kinds of books about and, and teachings about healing. Interesting. There is no signal in this scripture that the blind man's belief structure had anything to do with his healing. It was all it had everything to do with co-suffering love. Because that's what co-suffering love does. It doesn't blame. It gives. That's the gospel. So the man's response to the man that healed him, he says, you know, uh, uh, who is he? Because I want to believe in him. And, and if I can give kind of my paraphrase of that is, here's the man. He's just been put out. You know, he's been healed. And he's like, I don't know what happened. I, can, I uh, used to be able to see. Now I can see. Do you guys want to see? I mean, what, what is it that you want out of me? And then he gets put out of the, uh, the, the temple. So the religious system has already told him, uh, he was to blame initially, and then they put him out of the temple, and he concludes, that I don't think that's what God looks like. Could I, if you could tell me who God is, I would like to know. Interesting. You do not need a theological degree to discern love, do you? Jesus says, the one that you're seeing, that you're hearing, that's me, and he says, I believe. Why? Because love is believable. That miracle had nothing to do with what the man did, with what he said, with what he brought to the equation. What he brought, remember, was mud and dust. But Jesus knows how to form beauty out of mud and dust, and he forms a different story. He knows what to do with mud and dust. He knows how to form something that is filled with light and life and beauty. This is the point that I want us to make this morning, the beginning of March. This isn't the only mud season, is it? We all have places where our life has been covered by dust and mud. Some of it's obvious, glaring. Oh, yeah, I know what they did. But sometimes it's not, is it? Now, if you're like me, that blame game, I often find myself in the lead role. Being blamed, blaming others, or the lead role that I like to play the hardest, blaming myself. And the sting of judgment that I've heard from religious voices either in my head or out of the mouths of others, if only you had done or when you get it together, then God will. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus, there was never a condition. He just came. Because that's what co-suffering love does. That's the gospel, beloved. 
I want to proclaim this over us today. The same God who took debris and rubble in Genesis 2 to form something beautiful still takes mud and dust and debris and rubble and, can I say, rubbish and forms something beautiful. The same thing that Jesus was used to assign blame, Jesus used to release the man. Beloved, Jesus knows what to do with your mud and with your dust. I, I pray Psalm 23 often. I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table of abundance before me in the presence of those who trouble me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Beloved, he is still making mud packs. He's still forming and reforming to bring light and life and beauty. And beloved, that is the good news that we're proclaiming today. The God who came to the original mud and dust season is still coming person of Christ. He's still changing everything. I want to invite us this morning to respond. If you, uh, if you would, would you stand with me and let's pray this prayer together. Let's pray this prayer. Discerner of hearts, you look beneath our outward appearance and see your image in each of us. Banish in us the blindness that prevents us from recognizing truth so that we may see the world through your eyes and with the compassion of Jesus Christ who redeems us. Amen.